Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I have the honor of having someone with me today talking about real estate. You know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, that I enjoy talking about real estate. You guys know I do a lot of land investing. And the gentleman today is talking about another area that I am personally very interested in. We had a past guest, Jeff Detmer, who bought a couple of self-storage facilities and sold one of them. And I think this gentleman today has more experience than Jeff and certainly can help some shine some light on it. He is the principal at Van West Partners. They're based out in Denver. Got a little bit of snow out there right now and here in January as we're recording this. And they do self-storage facilities and all kinds of other real estate. They now have a track record over $195 million in real estate assets. So I know he has a lot of experience to share with us. Please help me welcome Jacob Vanderslice. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks, Dave. Great to see you. Thanks for having us on today. We appreciate it. Yeah, man. Yeah, glad to have you on and, and talk a little bit about it. I know um, certainly we're going to talk about storage facilities and pros and cons of, of that asset class, but I know you've, you've been doing this for a while and it wasn't just self-storage. So uh, I know you're based in Denver. Give us a little background on you. Where did you start out and, and how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, I, I was a career firefighter out of college and I started doing fix and flips on my days off and got busy doing that and ended up quitting my fire job. And I've been uh, unemployed in real estate ever since about 2006. And uh, we grew that line of business pretty heavily in the following years. And um, we've done just over 1,200 single family fix and flips over the years. And it's a line of business that we know and love, but we haven't been doing many deals the last few years because inventory is tight, competition's pretty heavy out there. Um, and then in 13 and 14, we, uh, we started shifting into commercial real estate and we began by doing adaptive reuse retail projects. So we would convert uh, old warehouses around Denver into breweries, yoga studios, restaurants, coffee shops. We, we sold some of those off and held on to others. And then we got in the self-storage business in 2015 and we liked the asset class because of its historic uh, resistance to recessions, the fact that it's scalable and repeatable and just kind of consistent demand and the customer base across the U.S. And we, we started off with ground-up development. Uh, we did a few deals with some institutional partners here in Denver. And then we expanded into the Midwest shortly thereafter, back in 16 and 17, did a number of deals in Milwaukee. Um, and we've, uh, we've migrated into the Southeast and further into the Midwest now. We've got facilities in Florida, North Carolina, Tennessee, um, Wisconsin, of course, Illinois, uh, more recently, Ohio, and we're working on a, a portfolio that we're buying in, in Michigan in early March. So it's been a good asset class to us, and uh, it's our it's our primary line of business. Well, I think that gives a great 
overview of kind of where you've been. So you, you were a firefighter before 2006. I'm curious to know, like, did you grow up learning about real estate or was it something you kind of stumbled into? What, what was your start? Yeah, I kind of stumbled into it. We had, we had a family friend who, who was doing real estate deals, uh, you know, all the, all while I grew up and while I was in college and it was kind of fun to watch him and hear his stories. And I, I've always been enticed by the entrepreneurial side of things and uh, always interested in hard assets. And, and frankly, real estate is one of the easier asset classes. You can quantify it, you can touch it, you can see it. Um, if a deal is not going well, you can do something to make it go better. So yeah, just got into it and, and never looked back. Well, and I think about 2006, I started in the world of finance in, in 2002. And so uh, now going through three bear markets, it's, it's fascinating to, to look back and think about it. And, and real estate, of course, was so super hot in 2006, 2007, and then a huge crash in, in 2008. So walk me through those years and how, how business went in, in real estate during those, those times. Those were, those were tough years. Uh, we, we had, a, as we bought new deals at the bottom of the market, we were knocking it out of the park on those and obviously getting beat up and all the stuff that we bought before the, before the crash. And uh, I learned a lot of hard lessons and I apply those all today. And most of those lessons really just involve the mitigation of downside. And can you carry the asset through thick and thin? And uh, I'm glad I went through it. There were some tough years, but uh, frankly, I would, I would probably do it again because of what I learned. It's, uh, it's tough to learn this stuff in a book or in a class. You just have to go out and do deals. So tell, sometimes tell, you don't uh, time it right. Tell me yeah. more. G give me a couple of specific examples of, of lessons you, you learned in that time period. Well, um, one lesson I learned, especially in residential real estate, is keeping enough cash on hand to be able to turn your properties when tenants move out. Um, just because you get it stabilized and you get it leased uh, does not mean that you're good to go, especially during a, a financial crisis or a recession, people stop paying rent. Um, it's good to have reserves. Um, leverage is very important. If you over lever a property and it's performing well, your dividend yield might be pretty extraordinary. But uh, when it turns the corner in the wrong direction, uh, you've got a mortgage payment that could be higher than your income. And that's when you get into trouble. So just uh, one of the big takeaways from those days is responsible leverage and, uh, and keeping cash on hand for when problems arise. So was it, important. was it, was it, cause of course, in, we have movies like the big short based on, on the book by Michael Lewis. And they talked about how going to a strip club and strippers investing in real estate and, you know, everything was just so hot and, and, and um, with zero down, right? What was, was a zero down kind of thing that happened to you or did you actually put some equity? In no, we put some equity in. I mean, it's amazing as we, as we watch the entire thing unfold. Uh, I mean, these, these mortgage brokers that were brokering these loans were just making a killing because suddenly uh, the person who couldn't finance a property some number of years ago can now finance 10. And I think there was so much speculation and so much irresponsibility. And it's just amazing that uh, very few people saw it coming because it was just systemic and unsustainable. But uh, I think it was, a, it was a healthy cleanse, even though a lot of people got beat up and a lot of money was lost. Um, it still is pretty difficult to get residential loans these days. So 
uh, I'm thankful that the uh, the man has kind of maintained that uh, somewhat rigorous credit requirements for someone to actually finance a house. So, yeah, it was a, it was a great learning experience. Well, it's kind of interesting. Right now, we're actually looking at, at buying a commercial property because we're renting our current office space, and so we're looking at, at buying. And it, it is not a fast process of going through and talking to bankers, and so I definitely don't feel that despite a low interest rate environment, that it's a really easy credit environment right now. What do you think? What's your take no, it's, on it? It's certainly not. And you know, so much has changed, obviously, in the last year. Uh, asset class specific, uh, hospitality and retail have gotten really beat up. Banks are really pulling back there. Uh, but underwriting is still very rigorous, but the, the low rate environment makes up for that. You can control a hard asset that produces cash flow with a very low fixed cost of capital. And we think that's very attractive right now. So walk me through, so you've been doing six plus years in the self-storage space, which certainly um, like Jeff Detmer talked about in that episode. I mean, the beautiful thing about it is you don't have tenants living in your facility and you can, you can easily um, get rid of them if, if they're not paying. Um, that's not, not a huge issue with their stuff. Um, tell me more about from, from your perspective, you know, what do you see as kind of pros and cons of this, this sector? Yeah. So what you said earlier is not entirely true. Sometimes tenants do live in your facility, uh, which is, which is a kind of a systemic problem, especially in urban infill locations and self-storage. We, uh, we once had a guy, we have an owner user building in Denver with um, our office space upstairs and self-storage in the ground floor. And our dock high door was open and uh, we were standing outside and a pizza delivery man shows up looking kind of confused. Huh. And a guy had set up his mattress in a storage unit and uh, plugged in his phone charger and ordered a pizza to be delivered to the storage unit. So wow. most of the time people are not living in there. So, so you're right. Um, aside from, you know, few and far between instances like that, but I mean, we can kind of start with some of the benefits uh, of self-storage and then slide into some of the uh, more difficult aspects of the asset class. But um, I think self-storage works because the, the population of the U S is fundamentally mobile. So people move, they start businesses, they go from state to state, and pretty much everybody is a potential self-storage customer. And the, the simple genius behind the asset class is that every lease is 30 days. So people can come and go as they please. And that flexibility is, is very appealing to our customer base. Uh, yet they'll often stay for sometimes years at a time. I don't know if um, anyone listening to this has a storage unit, but if you do, I would venture to guess that you've had that unit probably longer than you thought you would. Um, that's just kind of the asset class. And the month-to-month -month lease also works on the ownership side because you're able to incrementally increase rates with a 30-day notice. And an increase of maybe $10 a month doesn't seem like a lot of money, but when you amortize that across hundreds or thousands of units, you can start to see some meaningful increases, not only in your dividend yields, but in the gross asset value as well. And when you increase rates, customers generally don't move out because of the inconvenience. They have to uh, call a buddy up. They have to get a truck on the weekend. They got to relocate their stuff. So we're, we're able to push through these rate increases um, without, without many move outs in general. So that's kind of one of the, one of the good aspects of the asset class. Um, on the bad side, there, there is a, uh, it's kind of a theory out there that uh, self-storage is to a degree fire and forget, and it's absolutely not. Self-storage is a very operationally intensive business. Uh, customer service is critical. Uh, good customer reviews are important. A seamless customer experience is important. And, it's, it's 
quite similar, I would venture to say, to hospitality and that your rates are constantly changing. You've got a seasonal aspect and you've got customers constantly moving in and out on a daily basis. So it's very operationally intensive. So it's a good asset class, but uh, you've got to have tight management practices in place to, to maximize revenue and, and control expenses. Um, another, another kind of detriment, especially as of late with self-storage, is a lot of markets in the country have been fairly oversupplied. There's been a lot of new construction um, in markets like Denver, Miami, Seattle. And because self-storage supply and demand is so, so local supply sensitive, like in the one, three and five mile trade radius, if you have new product getting introduced to a submarket, you can you can feel and you can see a pretty immediate drop in rates and occupancies. And, and some of these bigger markets that are overbuilt, it's a race to the bottom to get customers in the door. So that's been one of the problems with the asset class in general. Um, there are still pockets in every market that uh, have low supply that still makes sense to buy or build in. But uh, that's definitely been a systemic issue with the asset class the last three to five years. Well, and, and generally what my impression is, hopefully folks have listened to some of our other podcasts where we talk about cap rates. And generally, from what I understand of the asset classes is cap rates are relatively compressed to other parts, meaning that you get less yield relative perhaps to some other real estate that might be available to you. Um, can you help fill me in on that? Do you agree, disagree with that? I, I completely agree. Uh, cap rates are really a function of what an investor views the implied risk would be on an acquisition. So for example, if someone's gonna buy an industrial deal that's occupied by Amazon, the, the risk of Amazon rolling over on their rent is basically zero. So that's gonna drive that cap rate down and the price up. And then on the other side of the spectrum, maybe you have a suburban retail center with a, a nail salon and a payday lending place. Uh, the credit quality of those tenants is pretty low and uh, retail has been an asset class that suffered. So the implied cap rate on that that an investor might pay has been pushed up. In self-storage, uh, the implication of the value of the asset class has been cap rate compression downward with values going up. And we're, we're definitely seeing that demonstrably in stabilized assets and more infill locations, uh, deals that are hard to replicate, uh, hard to get entitled, hard to build. Um, if you've got a property that's in a major MSA that's downtown, that's at 90% occupancy, you could probably get a sub five cap for that deal just because of the perceived safety and the, the lack of the likelihood that, the new, that new competition is going to be introduced into that submarket. Mm -hmm. um, we've also seen a fair amount of cap rate compression on portfolio sales. So big private equity institutional investors right now want to deploy lots of capital on each transaction they do. They're not, they're not folks who want to do a $5 million deal. They want to do a $500 million deal. Right. And they'll pay a very low cap rate for scale. And one fairly recent example of that, I'm not sure if it's closed yet or not, but uh, Blackstone announced the acquisition of the Simply Storage Portfolio a couple months ago. And that acquisition is $1.2 billion. And the cap rate on that acquisition is somewhere in the low fours. So mm -hmm. kind of another example of someone paying a very high price for scale in an asset class that's performed fairly well in the midst of uh, all of the fallout we've been dealing with the last year. Well, I'm curious to know, you know, with generally, you know, we think of this asset class as being fairly recession, re recession resistant. How did things go? You know, were 
have there been a big turnover in tenants uh, in in facilities? You know, you certainly have a nationwide scope on it. What's your take on that? How has COVID impacted the business? Yeah, uh, COVID's not has not has much of an impact on self storage as it has in other asset classes. Our collection rates. Uh, on our existing customer base are pretty similar to multifamily collection rates. We're coming in in the high 90s, 97, 98%. Uh, the REITs are reporting the same sets of data as well. Um, and both within our portfolio and the REIT portfolios, we've seen uh, quarter on quarter occupancy increases from Q4 of 2019 to Q4 of 2020. So we've definitely seen revenue growth and occupancy growth in the midst of all of this fallout. And I think the reason for that really is the friction the country is going for uh, going through right now. And self-storage uh, benefits from friction. And by friction, that is, that's people moving up and down the economic ladder, getting new jobs, losing jobs, uh, marriage, divorce, upsizing, downsizing their homes. Really life changes are what drive self-storage demand. And for better or for worse, of course, uh, a lot of us are going through those right now in the last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. A lot of people, I know with my land business, a lot of people going rural and trying to get out of town and getting away and, and certainly people moving out of California and into Texas and Florida and other kind of high income states, high regulatory states, We've seen a lot of that happening. Um, I'm curious to know, certainly, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast and, and busy physicians, have, have a lot to think about when it comes to investing into real estate classes like this. Um, you can be an investor as a more residual, quote unquote, passive investor where you don't have to invest the time. Uh, someone else does it for you, which you guys have a fund, of course, with which to invest into, or you're a business owner which is what I gravitate towards because I, I like spending time on this stuff and under, understanding it. Um, what do you see as kind of pros and cons in this space with being a passive investor versus a active business owner? Yeah, we can compare this space first to a couple other spaces and, and kind of infer some conclusions there. I guess the most extreme example would be, let's say somebody wanted to get into build to suit triple net industrial deals. So they would go out, they would find land, they would find a tenant, they would build the industrial deal, lease it up. And given that it's a triple net lease, they can forecast out their revenue streams as long as the tenant pays for the entire term of the lease. And their their yield is very quantifiable and predictable. And once the, once the property is built, uh, operationally, very unintensive. They don't have to manage it very actively. They could probably hire a third party to do camera conciliations and collect rents. So might be tougher to get done, but once you're, once you're stabilized, you're just kind of getting checks in the mail. Because self-storage is so operationally intensive, it's kind of the polar opposite. So you've got the customer service component. You've got people moving in and moving out. You've got very dynamic revenue management. So if you have the stomach to go out and build a storage facility or buy an existing storage facility, you have to be ready to kind of roll up your sleeves and put some good operational practices in place. And frankly, if you're going to do one, it probably isn't worth your time. But if your intention is to do it programmatically, it could be worth your time. And it's a, it's a great income stream and uh, you know, a, a great thing to do on the side to offset some of your other active income sources. So benefits mainly to being an owner operator are you don't have any partners. 
you own the deal yourself and your uh, success or failure is entirely predicated on your ability to manage the facility. Um, the, the downside to it is, is, is it could be a time drain. If it doesn't go well, you might have to hire a third party management company to oversee the facility for you. And there's fees with that um, and risk to a degree because often in our experience, third party management platforms just don't care about your deal as much as you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kind of some of the benefits and detriments to uh, being an owner operator and doing deals yourself. As far as investing in syndications or funds with sponsors, um, one of the benefits is it's very, um, it's very inactive. You analyze the investment, you understand the investment, you wire your capital and sign subscription documents, you get a check in the mail every quarter, and you've got some tax benefits and some upside, and you read quarterly reports. So it's fairly straightforward. The downside to it is there's, there's an implied lack of control. Um, as an investor, if it's not going well, the investor can't do much to make it go better. That's kind of on the shoulders of the sponsor. Um, and if, if you're investing in a fund, funds historically uh, have geographic diversification, meaning they have multiple assets versus a single asset syndication. So the fund could potentially buy deals in markets that you don't want to be in, but it's kind of out of your control to a degree. Um, so yeah, in, in general, it's a passive, repeatable way to benefit from the income and upside storage produces, but you're also to a degree in the backseat and uh, kind of have an implied lack of control over, over the destiny of the asset base. Sure, absolutely. And certainly there's, there's um, layers of costs with, with all that that are out of your control in terms of, of um, the sponsor and the managers and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Certainly. But on the other hand, you know, you have the systems and experience and stuff like that to, to hopefully have those costs be lower, perhaps on average than someone um, that would do it themselves. So I think kind of pros and cons with all of this. And I think I like to think of the self-storage business as analogous to multifamily in the sense that you can buy a duplex or, or triplex, kind of a smaller facility, if you will, and in self-storage, I'm sure there's smaller facilities uh, or you could, and that's capital that's easier to deploy, right? It doesn't take as much money, but now you only have two or three or maybe you buy a small apartment complex of 10 doors, you know, it makes it harder to pay a manager, right? Often it's, it's the investor whose time is going into it, um, figuring out some, some of the, the uh, nuances uh, and, and being awakened with issues, uh, perhaps of people breaking in a facility or ordering pizzas and having it delivered to exactly. their, yep. their, their, uh, their storage facility. But I would imagine a lot of those issues, once you get some experience are kind of few and far between. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. And I just want to make sure to thank each and every one of you for listening each and every week. When I get phone calls and emails and texts, it really just touches my heart. And as such, I just want to make sure to bring to your attention for one of the final times that for this month, the last time I am going to have the Freedom Formula for Physicians, where you can get a physical copy and an electronic copy for only a dollar plus shipping. 
And so my friends, if you want to take advantage of that deal, make sure to head right now to www.drfreedombook.com. So that's D-O-C-T-O-R freedombook.com. And again, what you'll get for only $1 plus a few bucks in shipping, you get the whole physical copy of the Freedom Formula for Physicians, plus you get an electronic copy. You get both of those things for only five bucks. And this offer is coming to an end on August 31st. If you look on September 1st or beyond, it's going to be about 10 bucks uh, for that whole entire package, which will still be better than anything you get on Amazon because you get both. But anyhow, that being said, I just want to thank you again so much for being here with me on this journey for joining me and learning about different ways to help you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Again, visit www.drfreedombook.com, D-O-C-T-O-R, freedombook.com to take advantage of this incredible offer to get the Freedom Formula for Physicians for only a dollar plus shipping. Peace. I'm out. I'm curious to, to know for those of us like myself that are interested in, in being the business owner, uh, where would you be looking to, to get some experience in this world? How, how would you go about it knowing what you know? Yeah. Um, I can, I can start on how we analyze acquisitions and then we can, I can give you some ideas on some educators out there that are pretty active in the self-storage space. Um, first of all, when we, when we look at a new acquisition opportunity, the first thing we look at is the supply ratio in the one, three and five mile trade radius. And we touched on that a few minutes ago on how sensitive self-storage is to local supply ratios. So we try to target markets that have seven square feet per capita of self-storage or less. Once you get up to eight or nine, you start to see a decline in occupancies and rates. And if you're under six or five, that's a market that's fairly undersupplied and you can expect to keep your rates fairly buoyant as well as your occupancy. So supply ratios are important to start with. Um, and second is really just good nuts and bolts, real estate fundamentals. Um, the, the, the market needs to have a decently sized population center. Uh, you generally don't wanna buy deals in extremely rural locations for a variety of reasons. Uh, you might have really good cash flow off of them, but there's not a lot of value creation there. And when and if you want to exit the deal down the road, there aren't a lot of buyers, for example, in a small town in Kansas compared to in downtown Denver. Um, so focus in population centers with uh, with good fundamentals and again, more nuts and bolts. But the, the, the country's demos are shifting as a result of COVID and a, and a lot of somewhat oppressive tax environments like we touched on earlier, everyone moving from New York and California to, to more tax friendly states. So try to focus in areas that uh, have population upside and growth upside. Um, as far as the facility type goes, there's, there's really a couple different food groups in self-storage. There's non-climate controlled single story drive up self-storage deals. There's deals that have a climate controlled aspect along with a non-climate controlled aspect. And there's multi-story elevator interior access facilities that are all climate controlled. And we found in general, the elevator access self-storage facilities 
um, really have a dip in revenue on the second, third floors and up because people, if they have options, just don't want to ride an elevator. <laughs> and if they can go to a drive up facility down the road with lower rates, they're going to go there first. So we, we found those really only work well in very dense infill environments where there's a lack of options for the customer base. So if I'm going to go buy my first self-storage deal, I would try to buy something that's 30,000 net rentable square feet or larger that's undermanaged with market rates that are below market. And often uh, owners are not great owner operators. I think over 70% of storage facilities in the country are owned by mom and pop onesie, twosie operators. So a lot of our sellers will be proud of the fact that their facility might be at 98% occupancy. But in self-storage, if, if you're too full, it means your rates are too low and you're missing out on a lot of additional income you could be realizing with rate increases and ancillary revenue streams. So yeah, 30,000 feet, I think is kind of the minimum for a, an owner operator's first deal and uh, just get good financing in place and, and uh, look at your financials and see if you can afford to hire a manager to sit in the office or if you can run it remotely. Um, with, the, with the state of software out there right now, we run a fair number of our facilities without a full-time staff member on site. Mm -hmm. People can lease their unit online, make their payments online, get their gate control access code online. Um, so if you, can, if you can kind of retrofit it to get it up to 2021 technology, you might be able to get away without having to pay somebody to sit in the leasing office and wait for the phone to ring. That's, that's a big so, deal. That's a yeah, big deal. Certainly. So yeah, those are just a few kind of high level things to think about if you're considering getting in the business as a, as an owner operator. That's great advice. Great advice. And do you feel like, um, just, just in general on average, which every, every MSA, every area is going to be different. Like how much does it cost to buy on average a 30,000 square foot building. Yeah. Like. It's a, it's a big range, but you, you could probably expect if you're, if you're trying to kind of keep your basis fairly low, depending on the location, you could, you could get anywhere as low as $60 a foot up to a hundred dollars a foot. So say you're buying something for $80 a foot, it's 30,000 feet. You're, you're paying two and a half million roughly. Which I would, I would imagine, you know, that's, that's a substantial down payment, right? You know, you yeah. Know. If you're, if you're levering it at 70%, which we, we kind of believe is the, is the top of where you should lever properties. Um, you're, you're putting a down payment in of 720 K and then you've got the upfront costs of all the third-party reports, the phase one, possibly a phase two, a survey, a property condition report, your market study. So there's definitely some soft costs while you're under contract. You're going to have to, to outlay. And certainly people, people could partner with other folks and all those kinds of things, but just so yep. everyone understands it's, it's not a small investment um, to get a, a certain size facility. I think the other interesting thing is getting back to that, that duplex triplex um, small apartment building analogy versus, you know, a 200 or 300 door apartment facility. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot different in running one versus the other. From what I understand of the self-storage facility, like there's institutional money that, that will aim for a minimum size. Things below that, you might be able to get a better cap rate on, um, but it, it's harder to use scale to spread your costs out. Uh, any feedback on that in terms of of what, what you guys look for in your criteria versus, you know, kind of mom and pop, as you were saying earlier. 
Yeah, um, th this is uh, this is not my example. I'm going to steal this from somebody else. It's a guy named Ryan Smith at Elevation Capital. They're they're a great self storage operator. But one of the things he likes to point out in, in various podcasts and webinars is the relationship of NOI to your cap rate. So let's say you buy a deal at a very low cap rate in an infill environment. It's a high quality asset, and you increase that NOI by a dollar, and that deal is worth a five cap. You have just exponentially increase the value of that deal versus buying a deal at a 10 cap in a 10 cap market. If you drive your NOI up by a dollar, you've created half the value that you would by driving the NOI up on five cap by a dollar. So the relationships to cap rates and value is, is very important to understand. And sometimes it's kind of enticing to look at a deal that's a very high cap rate or very high yield on costs to return to our Kansas example. Not that there's anything wrong with Kansas, but there's a lot of small towns out there that there's not a lot of buyers for self-storage in. You could buy a 10 cap deal out there, put leverage on it and make a 15% dividend yield on your equity current. Um, but a buyer is probably going to pay the same cap rate down the road and you're not going to make a lot of money. But if your primary objective is cash flow, um, buying those kind of tertiary market deals at a very high cap rate might make sense. But we like to kind of blend cash flow with a, uh, a quality asset that has a lower implied cap rate valuation. It reminds me a lot just thinking of, of real estate on the coast, just residential real estate. You know, you get, if you want to rent residential real estate in, in California, you know, it's, it's really a lot of appreciation and very little cash flow, right? You know, like if, if you're buying fresh and you don't, didn't buy 20 or 30 years ago, you know, you're buying something for 700 grand or 800 grand and, and, um, your, your rent isn't going to be nearly as much as a percentage of that purchase price, but more than likely it ends up appreciating faster. You know, you'll make a hundred or $200,000. Is that kind of a fair analogy? Absolutely. And I think there's, uh, depending on what your objectives are, I think, I think both options work well. I, I think that wealth creation in real estate is all about income. And I think net worth ends up being a byproduct of income. You, you, can't, you can't necessarily go out and spend net worth, but you can go out and spend income. And so we try to blend, we try to blend uh, the capital appreciation component alongside the income as well. I love it. I love it. Well, I think we, we've covered a lot of different stuff and, and given um, people things to think about in terms of whether they want to invest time or not. You know, and certainly not everyone is, is, and I say this all the time, is not a good candidate to be a business owner. Um, so those of us that that want to focus our time on on being physicians and doing the best we can there, and just do the stuff on the side, the the passive option is great. Um, and certainly there's a company like yourself, and there's others out there. So for those of us that that maybe don't want to invest the time and but don't have a problem investing money. What would you be asking someone like yourself to understand? Because you're coming in as someone that maybe hasn't done a real estate deal before. You know, maybe you bought your primary residence, but you've never rented out, um, rented out a home before, even let alone invest in multifamily or, or self storage. What kind of questions would you be asking, Jacob, in, in order to better understand whether an investment or, or an operator is good or not? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. There's there's a lot of things to understand as you consider investing with a sponsor with an asset class. Um, the, the first thing you need to understand is how the deal is structured. 
So typically there are a few components. There's a preferred return in most syndications or funds that's designed to get investors up to a minimum per annum yield. And then after the preferred return is satisfied, there's typically a split of the cash flows thereafter between the sponsors and the investor, uh, the investors, I should say. And you need to understand whether those two metrics or deal terms within the funder syndication are market clearing, meaning is the split rational? Is it comparable to other funds or syndications? You also need to understand what the fees are the sponsor is charging. Uh, traditional funder syndication will charge fees like an asset management fee, an acquisition fee, uh, sometimes a property management fee if the sponsor also has the management platform. So also understanding whether those fees are market clearing. And another thing that's really important to understand is the elusive metric of IRR. And I'm sure you've touched on this on your podcast in the past, but IRR stands for internal rate of return. And really all it means is it's a time-weighted series of cash flows and it calculates an investor's return based on when money went out and when money came back into the investor. So understanding IRR is really important because IRR can give the illusion that a deal is better or worse than it actually is, depending on how it's expressed. So one quick example, if, if you give me $100,000 today and I give you 150 back in six months, that is a 1.5 multiple, but it's 100% IRR because you've made a half on your money over a half a year, if that makes sense. So, and likewise, if, if you gave me a hundred and I gave you 150 back in, in a year from now, that'd be a 50% IRR because you did exactly a 1.5 multiple over a year. Now, when it gets tricky is, let's say I can tell you, I can give you a 365% IRR. Well, to start, you probably shouldn't believe me or, or do a deal with me. But if I did that, you could give me a hundred K today and I could give you one-on-one back tomorrow. And because you made 1% in a day, your IRR was 365%. Now, the problem with that is you made a great annualized return, but you only made a thousand bucks. So as you analyze syndications and funds, understanding how that IRR is calculated and over what time period is important, but even, even more so, I think it's really important to understand what your expected total equity multiple is for the life of the investment, meaning how much money do you put in on the first day and how much money have you gotten back in total over the life of the fund? And if you can balance a decent IRR with a decent equity multiple with a cash flow component, that's probably a good place to invest. Um, but if it's somebody giving you a 30% IRR in a three month investment, you made a great annualized return, but you didn't make very much money. So kind of balancing all those different levers is, uh, is an important consideration as you, as you examine different investment opportunities. Well, you know, I would I would add to that, and those are all really, really good points in, in thinking about understanding some of the financial basics and understanding the language and and being able to compare costs and and those sorts of things. Um, if if I were a physician looking to invest passively, I would also ask about leverage and use of leverage. I would ask about um, whether they're fixed or variable. You know, I think that's something in, in the financial crisis that that hasn't been talked about a lot recently, especially in this low interest rate environment we have right now. You know, someone goes out as a company like yours and they have a five-year arm essentially on their financing. You know, interest rates could be a heck of a lot higher in five years than they are now. So that that's a potential danger someone could walk into where you have extremely low interest rates, but it's only going to be for a short period of time. And now the piper comes asking for payment. 
Um, so I, I would be asking those kinds of questions. Um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of fund managers get into trouble when they can't meet their debt ser service obligations, and that's really important to understand. And as you pointed out, if it's a, if it's a short term maturity, you have the risk of having to refi in a, in a small amount of time. Rates could go up. Maybe the property isn't producing enough cash flow to justify a new loan amount. So that's that's certainly a risk factor that uh, that folks should understand. But I think that the biggest concern that I would have as a physician putting money into something like this is, is um, I think a Bernie Madoff and, and um, understanding how you can trust some person that, that you are giving full control of your money over to without being able to get your hands on it anytime real soon. Um, so help us understand that, you know, how are you going to weed out a good operator uh, from a bad one to, to avoid, you know, someone running off with your money to the Cayman Islands or something? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, one, one easy option, first of all, is sponsored track record. How many deals have they done? How have those performed? Um, any sponsor you're going to invest with should have no problem telling you about their track record and giving you documentation to support what they tell you. Um, reviews from other uh, investors or reference checks from other investors, bankers, attorneys. The problem with reference checks is no one's going to give you a, a bad <laughs> rep. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes people will, like we've done that a few times with our investors. Hey, can you talk to this guy as a reference check? And, and uh, you, might, you might glean more information than you expect sometimes because investors will talk about, yeah, we did this deal with these guys three or four years ago. We made money, but it didn't go as expected. The deals we've done since went well too. Um, so these guys mostly know what they're doing and knock it out of the park, but sometimes a deal doesn't meet expectations. So don't, don't shy away too much from um, getting referrals or getting uh, reference checks because people will tell you quite a bit more than you might expect. Well, I think uh, that brings up a great point. I think if someone can honestly tell you when someone else is screwed up and that they're human, you know, I think that goes a long way um, in something sounding real and not too good to be true. Um, yeah, my, my experience with these, these kinds of investments is that someone may tease out you know, high internal rates of return or high cash flow. But reality is, you know, they're raising money. And until you've finished raising money and you have the assets, you really don't know where it's going to go. So, yeah, that's, that's very true. And the only common thing about any pro forma that we put together is how wrong it is. <laughs> and, and it's a question of whether it's wrong in the right direction or wrong in the wrong direction, but it's always wrong. So good, good sponsors are doing the best they possibly can to accurately forecast how an investment's going to perform. But they're also, and we are also, forecasting values and cap rates seven years down the road. And we can't tell you if cap rates are going to go up or down in seven years. We can take a pretty good guess and we could be conservative and carry a fairly high exit cap to drive to our return assumptions. But nobody can look in the eye and tell you what a portfolio is going to be worth in seven years from now. So under which kind of segues to a degree into understanding what the drivers are and the sponsors modeling to solve to that return expectation. If somebody's telling you they're going to sell everything off at a four cap, and that's going to get you a 15% IRR, uh, you should probably think twice about that. Unless it's like, uh, you know, multifamily and, and some coastal market, which may be off the table anyway. Um, 
so understanding what the assumptions are that uh, that the sponsor is 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 putting into their pro forma is really important for a, an investor to uh, have a handle on. Well, and especially I think I mean, gosh, you're investing a hundred thousand dollars into something. You know, take take the time to do due diligence. I think that's the biggest mistake people make is um, um, blind trust, trust yeah. but verify. You know, I yeah. think is is always a good good motto to go, to go by. Heck, visit a building, you know, check it out. See, see that it's legit. Talk, talk to the, the, if there are, is someone operating it, you know, talk to the employees, see what they have to say. So I would do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Call, Um, call their uh, call center and see if you get somebody on the phone to lease a storage unit. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. That's a great idea. Well, Jacob, we're running out of time for today. Any other closing thoughts and as we wrap up the conversation? No, I appreciate you having us on today, Dave. Thank you. And, and hope that uh, everybody listening got a little value and a basic understanding out of the self-storage industry. Perfect. And if people are interested, they want to check out more and learn about opportunities with you folks, where can they go to? Uh, you can go to our website, fanwestpartners.com or hit me, hit me on LinkedIn. My name's Jacob Vanderslice. Uh, or email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. All right, my friends, there you have it. Jacob was kind enough to walk us through. I think there were some good questions and, and I really love that last one about the, uh, the calling up the facility itself and trying to rent some space. So I think those, those were some really good thoughts that he had to laid out fully for us, business owner versus passive investor, things to think about along the way. Um, and let me just say, don't, don't, don't uh, get too scared of, of any of these things that we're talking about. The point is, even if you are being a passive investor, you still need to do homework ahead of time. So make sure to invest some time into it. But then once you do and everything's working, then, then you should be good to go. And so my friends, make sure to check out Jacob at Van West Partners. And we look forward to hearing from you soon. Remember my friends, remember to slash your debt slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle.